Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's just coming up to four o'clock now and it's Tuesday home time. It's Jan Bartlett and I'll be here until 5.30 this afternoon. Today, Monsanto, after the corn of Mexico, we'll be speaking with Bob Phelps, who's the Executive Director of the Australian Gene Ethics Network. Japan expanding militarily and Australia bombing Syria with Professor Richard Tanter from Melbourne University. Politics in Spain, particularly in the Basque country with Tristan, who's been living there off and on for a couple of years. But first, let's hear it from Mr Kevin Healy, and that's been another one of his weeks. A week, Jane Lister, when the Canberra Comedy Festival saw then big supremo tidy a bit more for the bosses and then Minister for Concentration Camps Razor Wire and Sink the Boats Peter Duffer falling about at Pete's Razor Wire, <laughs> sorry, Razor Sharp Wit, a side-splitting routine about our Pacific neighbours going under, under the weight of Trublawazi's fossil pollution. Well, well, the civilised, developed world's fossil pollution. And the former Minister for Concentration Camps, etc., scuttled them more less than looking aghast. Uh, there's a microphone. He swallowed too late. But while Tiny and Pete were falling about, they got this message. There's a party meeting, they were told, and thus... The comedy of errors led to Tiny becoming a not-so-funny footnote in the history of parliamentary plutocracy. The plutocrats deciding it was time to run the show themselves. The puppets weren't transferring the wealth to them quite fast enough. But on that, of course, how fast enough is fast enough? Selecting the richest plutocrat in their parliament, representing the wealthiest seat in their parliament, one of their own, one of the 1%. Well, it makes sense. And the Mr. 1%, Big Supremo Malcolm Tun of Bull, said the compulsory, how humble he felt. And the first word that springs to mind when we think of Malcolm is humility. And he assured us he would be consultative. That's very reassuring. The boys down at the Melbourne Club chorused. After attacking poor Malcolm the night before, before the vote, the Minister for Offensive Trained Killing Kevin and Screws the Workers and bounced up on Radio National Brecky this morning to tell us the Caring Business Class Party must be a broad church. Well, that's where his politics come from. A broad church involving people like him, and it would destabilise train killing if we kept changing the minister. And, well, we've all admired how Kevin hasn't let his not-so-Catholic, small-C Catholic views influence his belief in the broad church bit. As in Britain, where the tiny Blyer lot in their Socialist Party call for the broad church bit as more to the left Jeremy Corbyn becomes big supremo and would be big supremo. Again, we can recall the broad church way tiny Blyer and the, and the new socialist means not no socialist lot embrace the more to the left. A year or less after the Greek election, the last one, Syriza, Cyprus, no concessions and all that, wait and see on Jeremy as the plutocrats led publicly by Lord Rupert of Wapping giving the works.
after several days of being pushed and shoved into that scary haunted abode, the House of Compassion, and before being reduced to a footnote, still big Supremo Tiny breathed a sigh of relief and headed for the friendly retreat of PNG to savour the warm hospitality. Too warm, it turned out. Get me out of here, Tiny pleaded. The climate is stifling, the humidity unbearable. These people should do something about the climate. These people, of course, created the heat by suggesting Tiny should do something about it. Well, true blue Aussie should do something about it, but we can be sure they were assuaged by Tiny's reassurance. We've got a good story to tell, he said. Utter crap doesn't cause you to sink. And while True Blue Aussie is sympathetic to your imagined sinking, if we were to react to utter crap, our great industries would suffer, would sink. But I can assure you, we have a brilliant scheme called indirect inaction. Indirect inaction. Uh, so they must pay if they pollute. Sort of. Well, well, not exactly. We pay them to pollute. Brilliant, eh? True Blue Aussie does deliver when we make a pledge, and we pledge to take indirect inaction against utter crap with great compassion. With, with great compassion. I say, wh why is this water lapping at my feet? That one line, as we know, immediately got Peter Duffer's razor mind developing his next comedy routine. On compassion, as we mentioned, poor Tiny began being pushed and shoved into that scary haunted abode, the House of Compassion, over the world refugee crisis, raising the numbers by the day as he kept his eye on the real numbers, the polls, the very same polls that sunk him anyway. Suddenly, we were welcoming no proper papers, queue-jumping, not illegal, not boat people, but we would not, could not welcome people fleeing our invasions who had made it to our razor-wire concentration camps as no proper papers, queue-jumping, illegal boat people. That would only encourage them. Where is this uh, queue? they asked. Well, Tiny and Team Troubler was, he know they should go to the Daesh terrorist death cult people, the Daesh terrorist death cult people, and secure proper papers, say they want to join the queue. But good news, the Socialist Party said it too supported leaving all these other people in the concentration camps. There's a moral principle here. It's concentration camps. Raise a wire and sink the boat spokesperson Richard Malls the desperate looked compassionate. Uh, what moral principle? Votes. Tiny's compassion extended to reducing, hopefully, the numbers seeking asylum by bobbing the proverbial out of them before they could become refugees. But sadly, getting back to the broad church we were talking about, theological heresy in Sydney. This upstart nun criticised God's man, Archbishop the Muslim's fisher of men, not women, who called with full Christian charity that Trubler was the only take in Christian refugees. This nun, in a most unchristian way, said we should accept asylum seekers on need, regardless of their religion or non-religion. What a hussy! excommunication material. As his lordship said, this disrespectful, disobedient nun must realise that a woman's role is to produce dear little Catholics born in the image of the dear baby Jesus, or as a nun, to pray for dear little Catholics. Must
must understand that in the Holy Mother of the Church, a woman's role is to be seen and not heard. Uh, yes, an Archbishop, why do you criticize Islam? Sadly, I regard Islam as sexist. Hmm, good man. Back down here in Melbourne, bet the public pays private transport union can't wait to sign the next cheque so it can enjoy the benefits of Socialist Party affiliation. And on state politics, former state big supremo now attempting to address the mass depression he caused, Jeff Footinmouth, came out fuming at Malcolm Tunner Bull's perfidy and ambition. Yes, yes, Jeff Footinmouth attacked ambition. Pointed out at one stage his popularity was down to 19% and yet I won the next election. Well, good news, Jeff. Your next ambition, whatever it is, is unlimited because here at 3CR your popularity rating is 0%, only because it can't logically be minus. So the world's your oyster. He talked about people considering only he or herself. Jeff. What were you doing during grammar classes at Scotch? Shame. Hope that's not what they teach. News item last night about a young girl with severe autism whose mother struggled to work for the money to bring her to True Blue Aussie after their local society condemned her as possessed by devils being sent back to the Philippines, I think it was, unless the government reversed its decision with several senior government ministers, including the new Big Supremo, supporting her case for staying here. Strong argument, I thought, until the item finished, with her fate now depends on Peter Duffer's mercy. Peter Duffer's what? You'll probably get a few laughs out of her by placing her in a cubicle during his next comedy act with a rising water level lapping at her future, over which he can share a few hysterical laughs with Tiny down at the used parliamentarian's club. By placing her like, you know, mother in there with her, each won't have to mourn the other, which shows just how merciful I, you know, like am. On that note, thought our finally this week should be a tribute to Pete's great comedic mind. At the comedy club, we'll throw a huge party <laughs> to celebrate what once used to be Kiribati. And we'll fall about as we wave to Roo <laughs> to what used to be Kuvaloo. While the way it's laughing, it won't be long now that we get heaps of laughs out of no longer Palau. Then I'll do a cruise ship comedy routine, wreath-bobbing about where these islands had been. But seriously, we won't have them budge on us like a praying mantis when they become just another Atlantis. Yet, no laughs, no comedy in the depths of the political briny, a tragic reflection of Joe, me and Tiny. Bobbing wreath, rip-vicious and reeling, leaving me with that sick, sinking feeling. We'll all shed tear after tear for the rising threat true blue Aussies all fear. No laughing matter. By week's end, I don't think I'll be here. Poor Peter, poor Tiny, poor Joe. What a loss to national thought. Good afternoon. Oh, I didn't realise that Mr Kevin Healy was a poet. You say it's only progress, but you didn't ask me. Did you know most of Gippsland and southwest Victoria are covered in licences for unconventional gas and coal exploration? 
Gas companies are trying very hard to get their hands on Victoria's precious farmlands. Are we going to let them? No. It's time to declare Victoria gas field free. The state government has launched another inquiry but won't commit to permanently protecting Victoria. So come and rally with the Lock the Gate movement and stand with the 64 gas field free communities on the steps of the State Library on Sunday, September 20th at 12 noon. Information? Quitcall.org.au Friends of the Earth is a 3 year supporter. Again, we are witnessing the insatiable appetite of Monsanto to rule the world with GMOs. This time the battle focuses on Mexico and the tradition of planting corn or maize, which goes back in history 8,000 years. With me on the phone is Bob Phelps, the Executive Director of the Australian Gene Ethics Network. There is a lot at stake, Bob, for the Mexican nation, as I said, 8,000-year tradition, in fact. What is that tradition? Most of the world's major grains, whether it be corn, wheat, barley and so on, have what are called centres of origin. And in the case of maize or corn, that is Mexico. So there are many, many different varieties of corn in Mexico, just as there are potatoes in other parts of Latin America. Plant breeders have been relying for the last couple of centuries on going back to those places to uh, get the land races, the original relatives of modern varieties of corn or the other crops, and using those to breed the beneficial characteristics out of the original corn in this case into the modern varieties. So, for instance, if a corn disease comes along, then the breeders need to go back to the centre of origin, in this case Mexico, and uh, collect wild seed from the relatives of modern corn, get those genes into the modern varieties to build resistance to a disease or make them more drought tolerant, for instance, so that uh, they can continue to be as productive as they have been in the past. The problem with genetic engineering is that it introduces foreign genes into those major crops And in the case of corn, uh, it's either Roundup tolerance or the BT insect toxins. And unfortunately, because of the trade between North and South America, the genes from American genetically manipulated varieties have got into Mexican maize and also into those land races on which breeders rely for that original germplasm. And the ideal situation would be that those original varieties would be free of any foreign genes and would be available to both breeders and also, of course, to genetic engineers who are also reliant on going out into nature, finding genes and cutting them, pasting them from one crop into another. Ignacio Chapella, who was a North American researcher about a decade ago, found that those original land races of corn are now polluted as a result of people bringing North American corn into Mexico. Instead of it going into the pot, it's gone into the field and it's spread its genes around to those other varieties. And this has created genetic contamination, which is putting into question the 8,000 years of uh, maize cultivation and the improvements that we need to make for the future to feed the world's growing population. 
Well, if that's the case, Bob, why did Mexico have a ban on planting GMO corn, if it's already there? The ban uh, is of quite long standing. The government realised, I think, that uh, they were under threat from North American varieties of genetically manipulated corn, that their land races could become contaminated. There was evidence once Chappella and his team had been there and done their research and so the bans came on and there was to be no deliberate transfer or planting of genetically manipulated corn in Mexico. However, that's now been challenged by Monsanto and the situation, as I understand it at the moment, is that Monsanto has had a win in the Mexican courts and that it's on the verge of getting its way. That's why there's a global movement to try to protect those land races and to protect the original home of corn varieties because, of course, a large number of uh, the human population are dependent on uh, corn in Africa now and uh, still in Latin and North America as a major staple in their uh, daily diet. What's been the reaction to that um, court case in... It was in Mexico and at this stage it appears still to be unresolved exactly whether it will go to appeal or how it will ultimately be resolved but there is a campaign of course to try to tell Monsanto no you can't get away with this and that the Mexican government should take a much tougher stance on ensuring that these natural or land race varieties of the original corn are really the common property of humanity that they don't not should not be owned or contaminated by an individual company and we need to get that message across that this is an important issue it's of course important in in relation to wheat it's important in relation to uh, potato and other staple varieties of food around the world that uh, can be potentially contaminated by genes from genetically manipulated crops. I'd imagine there's other biotech companies looking at this result as well? Well, there would be. Monsanto, of course, is the biggest, and it still has about ownership of about 90% of the genetically manipulated crops in the world. The soybean, corn, canola, cotton, and sugar beet, which are the five broadacre crops that are now being grown. But of course, Monsanto very cleverly gives other companies like Dow, BASF, Syngenta and others a share of the action by letting them take those patented genes and put them into their own varieties of the crops and market the seeds so that Monsanto doesn't appear to have a monopoly because of course governments are very averse to the idea of individual companies having a monopoly over particular crops or particular inventions or particular parts of uh, markets around the world and in their own jurisdictions. So uh, Monsanto has uh, hived off and has recently been discussing with Syngenta a melding of the two companies which would have made them into uh, jointly the biggest agrochemical and the biggest seed company in the world. That's not going ahead for the moment, but we can see that there are um, trends in the marketplace to the concentration of ownership and control of the human food supply. Uh, For instance, uh, only six companies own around 70% of all the grain, fruit and vegetable seed stock of the world at the moment, and uh, the concentration of ownership there has been accelerated by Monsanto in particular, buying up its small competitors 
So while it seems that we have um, an, a diversity of ownership out there, when you trace it back, as um, Phil Howard, an academic in the USA, has done, uh, you find that uh, most of the roads lead to Rome and uh, Monsanto is the Rome of the seed business uh, with uh, something over 25% share of ownership and control of uh, our fruit, vegetable and grain seeds. Well, looking at what could be the worst case scenario, Bob, for Mexico, if this decision is upheld, what will it mean for the farmers, the, the corn farmers in Mexico? Gosh, that's very hard to predict exactly how they will view the genetically manipulated varieties. It's really hard to say. There has been a, um, a very strong peasants movement there, La Via Campesina, uh, which is the global network of um, family farmers, is very strong there. And uh, I think there will be resistance. But of course, once a company like Monsanto gets into a market, you can see that there are all sorts of inducements, disinformation about the potential of these new varieties to uh, be higher yielding, to be more economical of chemicals. And of course, many promises are held out for the future about drought and salt tolerance, higher nutritional value, and a whole raft of other things which are very unlikely ever to come true. They are the gateway to continuing to sell Monsanto's Roundup and to supply seed that has its own built-in insecticides. Well, they're the promises. What is the reality? Well, the reality is that despite 30 years of research and many, many billions of dollars spent, we really have five crops, soybean, corn, canola, cotton and sugar beet, with just two traits, the Roundup herbicide tolerance and the BT insecticides being produced by the crops themselves, although the Roundup tolerance is by far and away the most common. The reason that these other promises of drought and salt tolerance and so on are unlikely to ever come true is that gene technology is really very crude and uh, simplistic. It's a cut and paste technology where you cut uh, single pieces of genetic information and uh, many of the traits of all organisms, including human beings of course, are uh, multigenic. That's to say that they rely on interactions between different parts of the genome in order to produce the blue eyes or the brown skin or the color of the hair in humans, for instance. Those multigenic traits are not amenable to being cut and pasted using the kind of genetic manipulation technology that's available at the moment and has been available now for some 40 years. Of course, the genetic engineers will say yes, but there are new technologies coming along as well, uh, which will allow us to much more accurately cut and paste genes, which will allow us to deal with the more complex genetic structures. That remains to be seen, and uh, those promises uh, that the industry has dined out on now for the last 30 years are unlikely to come to fruition unless something in the way of a new technology is actually realized outside the laboratory because what most commonly happens is that a new plant or animal might be successfully developed uh, in the laboratory using genetic manipulation but very commonly these organisms are less fit to survive and prosper in the environment and so once the farmers get them onto their farm they are no magic bullet they don't uh, generally live up to uh, 
farmers high expectations and what we've seen in Australia is that many farmers who have tried genetically manipulated canola for instance uh, have now said well we gave it a go it didn't work out and we're not doing that again especially in the current climate where GM free non-genetically manipulated varieties are this week in Western Australia for instance fetching an extra $63 per ton for GM-free over the GM varieties. It's a very big premium, and with the extra costs that are involved in growing GM, it's simply not profitable, and uh, farmers are seeing that and are turning away from it. There are many other options in canola and uh, in other grain products. Farmers are quite disillusioned uh, in Australia at this stage, I'd say. The vast majority, some 98% of our 134,000 farmers in Australia remain GM-free and I don't think most of them will ever embrace genetic manipulation as a technology or a product. Just before we look at the recent court case in Western Australia, what about the pesticides that come with GMO? Are they also killing beneficial insects in these broad acres? Well, that has been an issue. Uh, The Bt insect toxins have been accused of, in North America at least, where they are very ubiquitous, of uh, harming monarch butterflies. In the agricultural environment, those uh, toxins in the crop plant are also expressed in the roots and they can have impacts on uh, beneficial organisms in soil. And that's, uh, of course, against the trend at the moment where farmers are now becoming very much more conscious of the quality and importance of uh, soil as a productive part of the environment. Can't have healthy crops without having healthy soils is is the wisdom at the moment. But of course if you're spraying Roundup then you're also having uh, adverse impacts on soil microorganisms. Roundup in the soil tends to kill the beneficials and to promote the pathogens and we see that this uh, is um, carried through into the um, introduction of new diseases of uh, more disease entities in crops that have been genetically manipulated and particularly sprayed repeatedly with Roundup herbicide. There are places in the world now where Roundup is banned? There are some, yes. Uh, Of course, the World Health Organization uh, just this year has um, upgraded their assessment of Roundup uh, of its active ingredient glyphosate because of course Roundup is a is a chemical mixture but the active ingredient glyphosate has just been uh, upgraded to the status of a probable human carcinogen that is a sea change and uh, some communities around the world are now saying we don't want Roundup we don't need it and we're going to do without its use because of course it is the most commonly used weed killer in the world It's been an incredible bonanza for Monsanto and when it's coupled with uh, genetically manipulated crops as a seed chemical package, enormously profitable. We just need to everywhere be reviewing the use of Roundup because, of course, on every street in our country we see uh, young men with minimal protection spraying that stuff uh, on footpaths, in playgrounds, in many, many environments, and so we're now encouraging our local councils also to seriously review uh, how Roundup is used and if it's needed at all. There are other alternatives like weed steamers and uh, flame guns and other management tools 
for managing those weeds that we find in places that are inconvenient. Because, of course, weeds are only plants that happen to be in the wrong place and somebody takes objection to them. Turning to that recent court case in Western Australia, the organic grower has lost his case once again. Can you just give us the, the details of that and where it will go from here? We don't know where it's going to go yet. It's the case Steve Marsh versus Michael Baxter. The case originated in 2010 when Michael Baxter grew a field of genetically manipulated canola just across a narrow dirt road from his neighbour Steve Marsh's place. He swathed the canola, that's to say he cut the canola and laid it down in the field to dry uh, before harvesting the seed. He'd never done this before and um, it's telling, I think, that it was um, so close to Steve's place. In any event, a substantial amount of uh, that canola was blown over the fence onto some 70% of Steve Marsh's organically certified property and spilt millions of seeds into the environment there. As a result, Steve and Sue Marsh's farm was decertified. They lost initially $85,000 and over the years substantially more than that. It went to trial in 2014 and uh, the judge decided that Baxter didn't have a case to answer, that um, Steve Marsh furthermore should pay $804,000 in court costs to his neighbour. It seemed a pretty draconian decision. In any event, uh, Steve managed to raise enough resources to take it to appeal and uh, it went to appeal in March of this year and the judgment was brought down just the week before last. And unfortunately, the case has again gone against Steve over his claim for the $85,000 lost as a result of the decertification. The Chief Judge, Justice Carmel McClure, made a very strong case that Steve Marsh should be compensated uh, the $85,000 that he had claimed, that his claim was valid, and that his certifier, in light of the uh, federal law and the rules concerning organic certification, that his certifier, NASA, were justified in uh, revoking his uh, organic certification. So the claims of the GM industry and, and growers that the decertification was not justified is refuted by McClure's judgment. However, the two male judges on the panel disagreed with her position. I think on uh, rather weak grounds, they agreed with the original judgment and unfortunately, therefore, the appeal was lost. It means now that uh, Steve Marsh's only recourse, if he does uh, choose to go ahead, is to now uh, proceed to the High Court of Australia, which of course is enormously expensive and uh, there's a question uh, of course whether or not he would succeed there. Uh, he's in grave danger of course of losing his farm. Uh, the other thing in all this is that uh, Monsanto backed the, the GM grower Baxter indemnifying him for the costs of his legal, uh, legal defence and so really uh, it hasn't been much sweat for him uh, whereas Marsh has been through the ringer for the last five years and always in danger of going under as a result of this case, uh, standing up for principle and for the rights of uh, the majority of growers to grow GM-free and to be organic and to maintain their organic certification in the face of their neighbour's uh, growing GM. Has the neighbour signalled that he's going to keep doing that practice with his canola? 
Well, he has grown it again. It's interesting that in the judgment, McClure observed that, uh, in fact, Baxter was advised by his agronomist to uh, go down the path that he took. He had to get extra machinery in to uh, do the swathing that uh, appears to have caused the problem. And he had never um, swathed before. So the judge took, I think, a fairly dim view of um, of Baxter not meeting what could reasonably be expected to be the outcome of this. Of course, Baxter has always maintained, if only uh, Steve Marsh had come and talked to me and uh, we could have sorted this thing out over a beer and by talking over the back fence. But it's now clear that uh, from the judgment and from the evidence that was given to the hearings that, uh, in fact, Steve Marsh was extremely proactive. He served notice not only on Michael Baxter but on all his neighbours that the growing of genetically manipulated canola in the district would threaten his certification. He also uh, approached Baxter to talk about it in advance and to counsel him that there could be problems between them. Baxter chose to ignore him. Steve also put signage on his boundary fences giving notice that trespassers would be prosecuted. Also, when the first case was going to come to court, there was the usual mediation, and in that mediation, Baxter simply rejected Marsh's approach for the compensation of $85,000, which is what it had at that time cost him in losses as a result of his decertification. The informal reports that we have are that uh, there was no mediation in good faith and that uh, basically Baxter, I presume knowing that he would be backed up by Monsanto, didn't enter into any agreement at that time and chose to go to court. There's a pattern there of behaviour. He's also grown the canola since, the GM canola on his place uh, in subsequent years. That too has posed threats to GM-free neighbours. I'm just wondering, Bob, is there a hidden agenda here to get rid of the organic farmers? Well, certainly some of the organic people feel that. One of the issues really is that the government, when it lifted the ban on the growing of genetically manipulated canola in Western Australia, under duress also made a promise that the uh, locations of those uh, plantings would be notified to others in the district in order that uh, a farmer like Steve Marsh could, if possible, take some kind of precautionary action. For instance, had Steve Marsh been growing canola, he could have chosen not to grow it in case some pollen came across the fence and uh, contaminated him and other growers are in that position. Likewise, um, there are other precautions that growers could take. However, the government simply dumped responsibility for that into the hands of the GM growers and into the hands of the company and said, uh, well, we advise that you tell your neighbours if you are going to grow GM canola. And in practice, uh, that hasn't happened. So uh, it means that really uh, we've got both organic growers out there and the vast majority of West Australia's 4,400 growers who remain GM-free are also at risk of having their GM-free crop contaminated. And that's not insignificant because, as I mentioned earlier, some uh, $63 this week and generally over $50 per tonne is being offered by overseas buyers for West Australia's GM-free canola. It's a substantial premium. It's worth 
hundreds of millions, if not billions, of extra dollars to Western Australia, and yet the government is, in a most foolish and foolhardy way, allowing that GM-free supply to be threatened by a few, perhaps some 5 to 10% of those growers who are growing GM are putting the whole supply chain, the whole marketing of GM-free canola, particularly into Europe, at risk. And if that market falls over, if it's found to be contaminated, then the premium will be lost, and indeed that market may be lost as well. Okay, Bob, I'm going to have to leave it there, but um, watch this space. Well, thank you, Jan. And that was Bob Phelps, who's the Executive Officer with the Australian Gene Ethics Network. Now, referring to the corn maize in Mexico, there are a number of websites to look at. The best one, I believe, would be easiest would be Help Mexico Beat Monsanto. As simple as that, Help Mexico Beat Monsanto. You are listening to Melbourne's community radio station 3CR. It's Tuesday home time and this is Jan Bartlett. And in a few moments more, we'll be hearing from Richard Tanter about what's happening in Japan with its increased militarism and reaction to Australia's decision to bomb Syria. Thank you, Your Worship. The Marxist Cowboys is a short, subversive uh, film about the alleged criminal activities of the Marxist Victorian Labor College over a 40-year period, uh, Your Worship. And it is all true. Listen, mate, I'm facing a few criminal charges. You, 325 fraud charges? They're all bullshit, mate. I was shocked. It has a cast of malcontents, including one Karl Marx. The wheels of the class struggle will turn again. This bit of subversion will be shown with two other bits of subversion at 3CR on Monday the 5th of October at 7pm, 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Check the website if you need more criminal ideas of crime. Just be there. I know I will be. Thank you, Your Honour. Late last month, over 100,000 Japanese brought their voices to the streets around the Japanese parliament, the Diet and the Prime Minister's residence and the military district to show their strong opposition against the security bills and the marked increase in military spending by the Abe government. On Friday, I spoke with Richard Tanter, who is Professor in the School of Political and Social Studies at the University of Melbourne. Richard has worked on peace, security and environmental issues in East and Southeast Asia as an analyst, policy advocate and activist since the 1970s. His research has focused on militarism and peace issues in Indonesia, Korea and Japan, as well as the wider politics of East and Southeast Asia. Richard, what is contained in the two security bills that has led to this unprecedented demonstrations? This is part of something which has been growing for a number of years in Japan, essentially a process of remilitarization. By that I don't mean going back to the militarism of the 1930s, but making what Japanese right-wingers call Japan as a normal country, meaning like countries like Britain and France, which have much larger military, much more active militaries than Japan has had in the past. This means uh, the capacity to intervene in other countries, for example, power prediction. In this case, Prime Minister Abe, who is probably the most nationalist Prime Minister Japan has had since 1945, has taken this a lot further. 
tightening the alliance with the United States, tightening the operational guidelines so the self-defense forces, Japan's Army, Navy and Air Force, can work together with the Americans much more closely, but particularly in this legislation, making it uh, much more of a case, much more possible for Japan to operate overseas uh, in pursuit of either collective interest with the United States or its own. It's about militarization of Japan very seriously and people are very, very angry about this in Japan. What percentage of the people are angry? Well, I haven't seen the public opinion polls very recently, but you have to understand that in Japan, even many conservatives, you know, and it's been a conservative government virtually unchanged uh, all through the, the last five decades, except for a, a couple of uh, um, years, even many conservatives are actually what we would call doves. They're still very unhappy about anything that reminds them of Japan's militarist past. And uh, most people have lost out in the ruling Liberal Democratic Party to Abe, but there's still those positions are still very widely held apart from uh, people who are much more firmly opposed to the American alliance. Is he going to get it through the parliament though? There seems to be an awful lot of opposition. I think uh, reluctantly I would have to, or unhappily I would have to say the chances are he will get it through the parliament it's essentially a matter of negotiating with, his, with coalition partners uh, New Kometo the, uh, a Buddhist party which has in its, amongst its members, very considerable opposition to this, but amongst the leadership, they're much more, as the word goes, pragmatic and aligned to go along with Abe. Uh, I think, uh, I hope that the demonstrations and the other expressions of widespread opposition will make some difference, but at the moment, Abe's doing pretty well. He's just been re-elected unopposed as LDP president. Uh, so he's really overcome his opposition inside his own party. And how much of this is to do with the US pivot into Asia? Well, it's uh, in a sense, I think it's actually separate from that. It certainly fits together, of course, very well with that. But in fact, uh, the, this remilitarization of Japan has been going on for much longer. Certainly, American pressure uh, has been important about that. But Abe and nationalist politicians like him want to do it anyway. They see it as part of rebuilding Japan, really getting rid of what they call the post-war regime, which is essentially everything that most of us know and rather like about Japan. And what about the impact on other countries in the region, including China? Well, China and South Korea and North Korea, let's leave North Korea out of it for the moment, but certainly China and South Korea are both very unhappy about this, both this, the general trend in the last 15 years, but also about Abe in particular. This has to do with the fact that, of course, uh, Japan colonised Korea for almost five decades in the first half of the 20th century up until 1945, very brutal colonisation, and secondly, uh, invaded China from 1931 onwards to 1945. Some 20 million people died in China as a result of that. That leads on to the point that really, as quite differently, say, from Australia and Japan, which of course were deep enemies with deep hostilities for a long time after the war, there has been no reconciliation between Japan and China and no reconciliation between Japan and either South or North Korea. That ends up being a huge strategic factor. The Americans are allies of Japan and South Korea, but they end up tearing their hair out 
because they can't get the South Koreans and the Japanese to cooperate because of the depth of animosity and resentment in, Japan, in Korea uh, about what Japan still refuses to face honestly. What about US bases that are still in Japan? What's happening there? Uh, nothing good, I'm afraid. There are still a very large number of US bases. A number of them have been modernised in recent years. The most important ones, uh, or most of the important ones, are in the south of the country, in the uh, Okinawan Islands, particularly the main island of Okinawa itself, where about one one-fourth, one-quarter of the land area of the main island of Okinawa is an American base. Uh, this has a huge impact locally, socially, environmentally. Even conservative governors of Okinawa can't get elected without opposing the bases. There have been promises for years to move some of the more offensive ones either out of Okinawa entirely. So some, for example, some marines have been moved both to the island of Guam uh, and to Darwin, uh, and others to be moved to other parts of Japan or other parts of Okinawa. It's basically not working at the moment, and there's still enormous pressure on the people of Okinawa as a result of this. Well, all in all, you expect more demonstrations, but that they'll be ineffective. I hope they won't be ineffective. I think they'll have a certain effect. I just think the balance of political forces in Japan is pretty grim at the moment, but uh, these demonstrations are immensely important to not only to try and change the situation within Japan, but to remind the rest of the world that Japan is changing and countries like Australia need to think about this very carefully. The typhoon in Japan at the moment, or it might pass by now, the worst floods they're saying in 50 years, again Fukushima leaking radioactive waste water into the ocean? Well, Fukushima, the, the nuclear power plant is, if you just look at the photos, you can see it very clearly, it's built at the bottom of a small mountain. Water continues apolitically to run downhill. Uh, it continues to flow through the highly radioactively polluted parts of the facility. Moreover, they're still pumping huge amounts of water into the three reactors to keep them cool, the ones that have melted down. And they're also storing a lot of vast amounts of contaminated, radioactively contaminated water on site in facilities which were thrown up in a great hurry and now, surprise, surprise, are leaking. So Fukushima is very much still in a critical situation. Uh, it's still something that needs enormous amounts of work, enormous amounts of money, and the awful thing is that the people who were evacuated by and large are still not able to go home. The second issue I'd like to talk to you briefly is the, the opposition to the now announced military action in Syria by Australia. A great number of prominent people, including yourself, have signed a letter to the Prime Minister. What did you say in that letter? Well, we drew attention to the fact that, first of all, it's simply an illegal activity, uh, and this is really extraordinarily brazen of the government. Uh, we can imagine what would happen if the Indonesian government decided to say that, well, it's worried about its security in its province, its part of the island, Papua New Guinea, and is going to bomb, for example, let's suggest, you know, um, supporters of Papuan independence in the country of Papua New Guinea. So it's complete, uh, just almost fantasy at an international legal level to try and spin this idea of so-called collective self-defence of Iraq. 
That's the first thing. The second thing is this is almost certain to worsen the security situation, the human security situation, uh, in other words, the security for individuals on the ground in both Syria and Iraq. Uh, it's a very, doesn't make anybody very clever to realise it's a very complicated situation in Syria and bombing campaigns are definitely making worse. The third point we, many of us would say, is that Australia simply has no national interest involved in this. It doesn't benefit Australia. It worsens Australia's general security interest by ensuring that instability in that region uh, continues. But Australia has really no constructive role to play uh, in the way they're behaving at the moment. How long will it be before a legal action is taken to stop this or to point this out to the government? Well, it's very hard to, uh, to mount this. There are some lawyers talking about high court actions. I'm really not clever enough at the law to know whether there's any real prospect of that continuing. But on foreign policy matters, the reality is there are very few constraints. There would need to be uh, really what is required is for the Labor Party to break this really quite appalling uh, bipartisan position which effectively protects the Abbott government but really follows on from the unwillingness of the Labor Party leadership, particularly under Bill Shorten and under Julie Gillard and Kevin Rudd before them, to do anything which appears to be not backing the United States uh, 100%. We thought they'd seen it all with the government's um, position on Iraq and... Indeed, and this is taking it much further... And in terms of Iraq, I mean, what is really extraordinarily important for us people in Australia to understand is that it's very hard to get uh, reliable information about what our armed forces are doing, both the people on the ground, the special forces operating with the Iraqi special forces, and the air force. There are no, I'm not sure to say there are no, but there are very, very few international journalists or even Iraqi journalists allowed to operate in the areas where these uh, conflicts are happening. So essentially the, the Abbott government, with the support of the Labor opposition, is operating in a completely closed environment, an information-free zone, if you like. And that's something we should be protesting. We need to have uh, independent reporting of what our government is doing in our name. Can you see another Libya where the aim is to destroy the government and there's no one there to take their place? Well, certainly that's the position that hardline realists, both um, uh, American conservative realists like John Mearsheimer, the, the doyen of uh, uh, international realism, have just said, look, I don't like uh, President, Syria's, President Assad's Syria, I should say, uh, but you really do need to think about what will happen when you pull him down, and that's the position of the Russian government, which is not a government I've got much admiration for, but it is raising a really important point. And we've seen uh, not only in Libya uh, this happening, but even worse, we've seen the situation in Egypt where the military, uh, essentially with American, if not connivance, certainly acceptance, uh, overthrew the democratically elected uh, Islamist government and then has tied itself an unbelievable knot to say that the, the government led by General al-Sisi uh, didn't come to power in a military coup. It obviously did so, but for the Americans to say, the government to say so would then trigger a clause in American foreign aid legislation which says we are not allowed to support governments which come to power with a military coup. So we're going to see something 
appallingly similar, I suspect, happen in Syria at some stage. But it's not to suggest that Syria isn't very difficult, very extremely difficult and complicated to resolve. What we can be certain of is that aerial bombing is not going to solve the problem and it's going to make things worse. Well, finally, leaders come and go, but it's the people who suffer. It is indeed, and uh, not enough of our foreign policy is focused on the the basic question of of human security. Of course, it's uh, excellent that that the Abbott government has changed its its mind and is going to admit a large number, an extra number of refugees, specifically from people uh, flying out of these conflict areas. 12,000 is pretty miserable when you compare it to the extraordinary willingness of the German government. But they're spending more on the Air Force than they are on the refugees. Well, indeed they are. And Germany is admitting 600,000 people. It's an extraordinary thing. And I think it tells us something interesting about Australian politics, that Angela Merkel, very clearly uh, an economic conservative, we've seen her hard line, for example, on Greece, uh, no lover of trade unions, no lover of the left, but a deeply principled person and just saying we have a responsibility to look after people in uh, profound trauma and and misery. And we really pat ourselves on the back when we say, oh, we'll take an extra 12,000 beginning in Christmas. There's something very deeply wrong with the conservative side of politics in Australia. Thanks, Richard. Good to be with you. And that was um, Richard Tanter, who is Professor in the School of Political and Social Studies at the University of Melbourne, and that interview was recorded on Friday. St Kilda Indigenous Nursery Cooperative are celebrating their 20th anniversary with a community open day and spring plant sale. An extensive range of native plants, bush food and wildflowers will be available, plus activities, talks and kids' sensory bushcraft corner on the Saturday. Head down to 525 Williamstown Road, Port Melbourne on Friday the 18th and Saturday the 19th of September from 10am to 4pm. St Kilda Indigenous Nursery Cooperative is a 3CR supporter. Finally, on Tuesday Home Time, we go to Europe, particularly Spain, with a focus on the Basque country. I'm speaking with Tristan, an activist stroke squatter from that area of northern Spain. Start, Tristan, with a history and geography lesson in relation to Spain. From my reading, there are a number of regions and nationalities of which the Basque is only one varying economic and social structures, different languages, historical, political and cultural traditions. How much of that is the reality? That's definitely true. This is the history of of the Spanish state. Some people say it's the first nation state. And as with all nation states, its history is very violent. So basically you had the kingdom of Castilla-Leon, which conquered all its its neighbours, including Basque country, including Catalonia. Basque country was the, the kingdom of Navarra. Catalonia was um, the kingdom of Aragon. And they were subject militarily to Castilla-Leon. And in Spain, they talk very proudly of the history of the expulsion of the, the Arabs. And in fact, there's, there's a national holiday called... Um, Matamoros, which means more killing day. But they don't talk so much about how the conquest also happened internally against other European kingdoms. 
No, the different languages, are they kept up in the different regions or not? That's also a source of a whole lot of conflict. There was the Franco dictatorship from the 1930s up until the 1970s, and under Franco, the speaking of other languages was strictly prohibited. The principal languages other than Spanish which are spoken is, is Catalunya, or Catalan, which is spoken Valencia, Barcelona, the, the islands, the Spanish islands in the Mediterranean. In the north, you have Basque, which is spoken in País Vasco and in Navarra and in, in part of the Basque province, because part of Basque country is also over the border in France. Then you have Gallego and, and other languages, which are, which are more minoritarian, but definitely. And since the fall of the Franco dictatorship, there's been a real effort to recover and promote these languages, which has been contested by the Spanish state. So just recently there was a bunch of education reforms which aimed at taking those minority languages out of schools again. There was called the Lomise reforms, basically both a conservative and neoliberal attack on education. So reducing the number of hours that were taught in minority languages and also, for example, religious education, making the mark that you receive for uh, religious education relevant to entering universities. So just giving a, a little plus to the students who studied religious education, which means Catholicism, basically. What sort of a government is there in um, Madrid at the moment? The, the PP, which is like the equivalent of Partido Popular, which is kind of like the Liberal Party, has an absolute majority. And, yeah, they're pretty horrible. Well, when people talk about Basque, or many people talk about Basque, they think of Basque terrorism. You spend a fair bit of time in the Basque country. How much of that is true also? The ETA, which is the Armed Forces of Basque Liberation, that has actually been disarmed for quite a while now. Well, from, from quite before 2012, there were attempts to negotiate a peace accord with the Spanish government. The Spanish government wasn't interested. In 2012, the ETA declared a permanent unilateral ceasefire. So there hasn't been any armed struggle in, in Basque country since 2012. And more recently, the ETA, as a, an armed organisation, ceased to exist. And so in the time that I've been there, the only violence has been from above, from the Spanish state, which, which continues. In what sense is it sitting on the people of Basque, the, the federal government? One thing that the Spanish state has done is legally it's established that anybody supporting the aims of ETA, which is political independence for the Basque country, supports armed struggle. And so there's a series of criminal offences, including apologising for terrorism and exaltation of terrorism, to give approximate translations, which means basically for shouting a slogan, you can go to prison for six years. And people do, in fact, go to prison for six years. And a lot of people, in fact, everybody has been put in prison since 2012. There was never any accusation of an act of violence made against them. Instead, they were accused of, of having the wrong ideas. Is this just for people in the Basque countries? Or? Yeah, which is another thing that happens because there's a lot of social movements all over Spain. But, for example, if you set fire to an ATM or to a rubbish bin, which happens in protests over there, and you do that in Madrid, then you're likely to get a good behaviour bond. If you do the same thing in Basque country, instead of charging you with property damage, they charge you with apologising for terrorism and you get six years in prison. And then not only that, once you're in prison, the Basque prisoners, even though according to the Spanish constitution they should be held in prisons 
closest to where their families can visit them, they're actually sent all the way to the other end of Spain. So a lot of the family and friends of prisoners are travelling a thousand kilometres or, or more return just to visit their, their family. How many people are we talking about? There's just over 500 people in prison at the moment in both Spain and France. So this law doesn't stop people, or some people it will stop, but others... When you talk about stopping people, the things that the law prohibits are really draconian. For example, it prohibits um, displaying photos of people who are in prison, because if you put up the photo of a political prisoner, then you're exalting what they've done, which is a criminal offence. But in a lot of cases, it's not people's comrades who've gone to prison, or people because... Arm struggle has never been a majority position in Basque country. In fact, the, the ETA and arm struggle was rejected by the Basque people, which was the main reason why they signed a, a ceasefire. So it's people putting up photos, not of somebody whose tactics they support, but of, of their brother or their friend or their schoolmate. And so what the law, when you say stop people, the law aims to stop people thinking about Basque independence, which is which is very difficult to do. And it seems a lot more likely that the Spanish state is trying to provoke people into into using violence again because it's been very convenient for the Madrid government that you can call everything terrorism, be it a, a newspaper or a radio program or a, or a cultural centre or a, a bar. Just recently, I think this year, there's a network of, of bars which are often the only bar in small villages, which are run as part of the Basque Nationalist Project, and they were all declared illegal, 111 bars confiscated by the Spanish state. So you're trying to stop any sort of social organisation, really. What pulls you back again and again? My own political trajectory is more of, like, with anarchism and with the Zapatistas, and and so engaging with Basque nationalism is, is interesting because nobody wants to be a nationalist in Australia. Well, people do, but that's very, very unfortunate for them. But what I've seen in Basque country, which is really remarkable, is the social fabric is, is really dense and people really look after each other. Getting away from Basque nationalism and talking about the squatting scene where I'm involved in, back in... 2011, there was an enormous uh, squatted social centre called Kakuta in Bilbao, which the local council evicted and demolished. And there were protests for weeks after that happened, and lots of police violence. They actually killed a football fan who happened to be nearby when the protests were happening, and they shot him in the head with a rubber bullet. I think somebody else lost an eye. Almost everybody was acquitted, including the police who were accused of, of police brutality. Now, four years later, there are 19 people whose judicial process has progressed and they're now on trial for things to do with the protest. There's been protests of two, 3,000 people in the last couple of days in Bilbao. And for me, coming from here, the idea that you could get 2,000 people in the street to protest against the eviction of a squat, which happened years ago, to me, I'm not sure how you would go about organising that in Australia. Describe what a squat is. It's just more than just a, a place, isn't it? It's a whole culture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, a, a specifically Basque thing is the gasteche, which means like the youth house, which is a space which is generally squatted, often squatted with the approval of the council. 
backtrack and explain why that is in a minute, where young people self-organise to put on concerts, workshops. The Gastechi in the town where I live has a street kitchen, it has a climbing gym, it has a free shop, it has bar concerts, organises lots of talks, organises lots of movie screenings. It's been running for, for 25 years, and or nearly, actually closer to 30 years now, and it's it's an institution. And to backtrack, the nationalist left has always been really keen to participate in the electoral process, but it's been constantly criminalised. And as of about five years ago, another manifestation of the electoral win of the Basque nationalist left appeared, and they've had massive electoral success in the Basque country, especially in the smaller towns. And in these smaller towns, there's cases where the nationalist left, when it was criminalised, only three people in the town would vote, which were the, the two police and, and the mayor. And now that those people have a political party that they can legally vote for, they're taking power in a whole lot of towns. And the local councils in those towns will actually say, this town has an enormous problem, which is that there's no squatted social centre in it. What can we do? And so squatting there is definitely has mass support, even at the level of local council. So people get together, they make a place habitable? Mm, generally, the Gustachis people don't live in them, but mm. as social centres, yes. Mm. yeah. But people do live in the squats as well? There are squats that people live in. Gustachis are a bit of a different case. Um, I can talk about a specific case in Vitoria Gastes, where I live, which was talked about. We did an interview with somebody from there on 3CR a couple of weeks ago, but uh, a suburb called Eracalior. Everyone knows about the property boom in, in Gastes, in, in Spain in general, what people don't know is that there were a bunch of local councils who also got in on the property boom. And the same thing that happens here, they would um, sell off the public housing, make lots of money, privatise it, build inferior public housing f- further away from the city centre. The government in Gastes was involved in that, evicted an entire suburb, an entire suburb which was built for migrant workers, migrant workers coming from Andalusia, Extremadura, from the south of Spain, to work in the factories in Gastes. That entire suburb, Cordera Calior, was evicted by the local council so that they could speculate with the land, and then the bubble burst. And so there was an entire suburb, complete with school, gymnasium, bar, library, which was evicted and nobody wanted to do anything with it because there was no money in construction anymore. That suburb has since been occupied and there's over 100 people squatting, living there, also doing projects in the face of the financial crisis to make their own economy. And what happened to the migrant workers? The migrant workers, most of them arrived from the 50s through to the 70s. There was a lot of work in Gastes, there's a big um, Mercedes factory and a Michelin factory. So a fair number had a similar to experience with migrants in Australia with class mobility and, and bought their own apartments. A bunch were rehoused elsewhere, given payouts to go to go look for somewhere else in the city. There was a really long legal process by a bunch of them that resisted eviction. And also the, the profile of the suburb changed over time. So more than migrant workers from the south of Spain, the newer poor people, Romanians, gypsies, who got a lot worse deal from the state, a lot less support. So was the Basque area 
less affected by the downturn than other parts of Spain? Yes, yes, the Basque area was less affected for a few reasons. First of all, the economy there has always been much stronger and much more industrialised. Second of all, there's relatively speaking much less corruption. As you were saying before, the Basque government has financial autonomy and so they've definitely done a lot better in terms of social spending. Basque country is the only province of Spain where there's a dole, for example. And also you have an enormous presence of cooperatives, including the Mondragon Cooperative, which has tens of thousands of workers, and also the, the Caja Laboral, which is, which is a big bank, which belonged to the cooperative. And so those cooperatives, instead of firing people, which meant that they couldn't pay their mortgages, which meant that everything crashed, they would reduce pay and shuffle hours and retrain. And so, yeah, the economy has been more resilient in that area. What's the history of the cooperative movement? Ooh, the history of cooperative movement. <laughs> the history of the cooperative movement, as I understand it, is with industrialization, there was a mass migration of people away from the, the smaller villages into Bilbao. And Bilbao, up until quite recently, was a bit of a, a cesspit with um, really highly polluting industries tipping their waste straight into the city, massive overcrowding. Some of the suburbs in Bilbao still to this very day have the highest population densities in Europe. And a network of parish priests said, what can we do to stop people having to go to the to the cesspit of depravity, which is Bilbao? And they started the, the cooperative movement. So basically, small-scale cooperatives. Basque country is very mountainous, and so there's a tradition of things including even the, the language changes from one valley to the next. So organising as valleys, they built the cooperatives up. And they're strong now? Time. Yeah, now they're very strong. It's not uncomplicated, but the Mondragon Cooperative is modern, high-tech industry. The, you see somebody riding around in a Orbea bicycle, which I've seen a few in Melbourne. They're made by the Mondragon Cooperative, so they're exporting internationally. You're listening to the final part of Tuesday Home Time with Joan Bartlett on Melbourne Community Radio Station 3CR. I'm speaking with Tristan about Spain and, in particular, the Basque country of northern Spain. Talk about community radio in the area. The community radio in Vitoria Gasteiz, which is the city where I'm living, is called Alaveri, which is amazingly like 3CR, but instead of it servicing a city of 3.5 million, like in Melbourne, there's only um, 250,000 people in the city. It's also much more punk and much more, more pirate. And there's actually an amazing story of the first broadcast of, of Alaveri, where there was a protest and they set up the office of the radio station and then they sent people off to um, report in live from the demonstration. And instead of the modern radio transmitters, which were very small, they were lugging around these great big suitcases and uh, the police were onto them and they were in the studios rebroadcasting what was coming from the suitcase when they heard the police charging and all the thumps as their reporters got, the, got beat up pretty badly. And so they quickly, quickly packed everything up and fled the offices because they knew that they would be traced back there. And that was the, the first broadcast of, of Halavedi. It's um, still going. It's still going. Yeah, it's still going. has a lot of support, a lot of members, does, does some really good stuff. And they have a lot of spoken word as well as music? They have a little bit of everything. Yeah, they try and do um, stuff in Basque language as much as they can. And, um, yeah, a lot of variety from one show to the next. Who's teaching the Basque language? Basque language is now quite heavily subsidised by the Spanish government 
this again is a bit of a complicated history. I think as of very recently, all primary education in Basque country in all schools is done in Basque. Is it very different to Spanish? It's completely different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, completely different. It's not even Indo-European. Yeah, nothing like Spanish, nothing like any other European language. What about the connections with the Basque people in France? Mm, so historically, they talk about Basque country being part of the Kingdom of Navarra, which has now been split effectively into three. The three bits that it's been split into is Base Basco, which is a province recognised by the Spanish government, um, which includes Bilbao, San Sebastian, Vitoria Gasteiz, three provinces. Then there's Navarra, which is another autonomous community or another province or state, which is also recognised by the Spanish government, but which has much less autonomy. And, for example, the government of Navarra, which is very right-wing, I think about a year ago, just ordered investigation, criminal investigations of every single high school teacher teaching in Basque to see if they were part of the ETA. So they're, they're pretty out of control. And then the third part of Basque country, which is actually consists of three more provinces, is on the French side of the border. And those three provinces are not recognised administratively at all by France or Spain. Have you got the language now? No, Basque is very trific- very, very difficult. I'm learning it a little bit at a time. Yeah. Tell me what you do on a day-to-day basis when you're there. Mm. So I'm living in a, in a squat, and one of the main political projects that we've been engaged in is developing a workshop, which started as a bicycle workshop, but then the building that we're living in is, is slightly older than, than white Australia, so... 230, 240 years old, which generally means that you have problems with the plumbing. So what started as a bike workshop with things that we've needed to do with the house, replacing windows, replacing the plumbing, replacing the electricity, we've learned how to do all these things. And so we've become kind of a a fix-it shop where other projects that need things, we can help them out a bit. So, for example, there was an exhibition about Western Sahara and the plight of the refugees, and they were doing an exhibition at a museum, and as part of that exhibition they wanted a torture chamber. So we built a torture chamber in our bicycle workshop. So a typical day might be go to work for a few hours, come home, make a communal lunch, build a torture chamber, <laughs> talk about the torture chamber on Aladeli, something like that. Can I just stay with Western Sahara mm. for a, a moment? We do a lot here mm-hmm. supporting Western Sahara. Mm-hmm. I just wonder what, it's, what the support is in Spain in general. Especially in Basque Country, because of the theme of national independence, there's a whole lot of support for Western Sahara. And Western Sahara was a Spanish province, and so they make the argument that Spain has a moral and legal responsibility for the plight of the Western Saharans. There's also a program which happens all over Spain, which is where kids from the refugee camps come to Spain for summer, and that's several, many thousands of of kids. Interestingly, the Basque nationalists also put a big emphasis on international solidarity, and that's an organisation called Ascapena, which has also been accused of of being terrorist, and there's going to be political trials soon about militants from that organisation. What about the Zapatistas? What's the support there? Yeah, there's definitely... I've been a little bit involved with a a Zapatista support 
Collective, Plataforma Vasca en Solidaridad con Chiapas, the Basque platform in solidarity with Chiapas. It's a really active group. They train and send a whole lot of human rights observers to Basque country, sell coffee, do a lot of fundraisers. Just recently, actually, this is worlds colliding, the protest that I talked about in support of a squad, Zapatistas went to support that protest because that squad has always hosted fundraisers and they took a giant uh, puppet, a three-metre-tall puppet of the Comandante Ramona, one of the Zapatista leadership. So there is Ramona, the Zapatista, defending a squat in Basque Country. So the solidarity goes both ways. And you've been to Chiapas, haven't you? Yeah, that was a number of years ago. Mm. Yeah, and Basque people are definitely very involved and in they do Zapatista go support. Can people leave Chiapas to come to Spain or not? The Zapatistas themselves? Yeah. There was a delegation that went from the Zapatistas to Europe a few years ago, but, yeah, no, it's very difficult because the Zapatistas are, are building their own autonomy and rejecting the Mexican state, but it's the Mexican state that issues passports. So it does get difficult. It has been done, but it's very difficult. Talk for a couple of minutes about Catalan, the, the recent moves for self-determination, autonomy. What were they after? All right, so... Catalonia, I don't know a lot about Catalonia, but basically the Spanish constitution, the Spanish constitution was renegotiated at the end of the Franco dictatorship. And the idea is that there was a transition from dictatorship to democracy. However, there's not a whole lot of democracy. A lot of the PP, the Partido Político, is kind of a direct continuation of the, the legacy of the dictatorship and they have an absolute majority. So, also, the, the Constitution, they said that they couldn't possibly change it. With the European crisis, they changed it. a lot of the financial regulation to the labour of neoliberalism. So if you've got money, you can change the Constitution. If you want national independence, you can't change the Constitution. It's been to the High Court a lot of times, and just recently there was what may be considered a victory in the High Court in the case of Catalonia, where they said it's actually legal to think about being independent, but not to act on that desire. It brought a lot of people mm. out in the streets, though, didn't it? Definitely. There's been a huge boom in the desire for Catalan independence. It's a bit... Again, I don't feel too qualified to speak about Catalan independence, but Catalonia, as we were saying before, each province in Spain has a different relationship to the central government. Catalonia doesn't have financial autonomy. So the, the taxes paid in Catalonia go to the government in Madrid, and Catalonia is relatively wealthy. And so money goes from Catalonia to support the less wealthy areas of Spain. And so one of the reasons why there's been such massive support for the independence campaign in Catalonia by the right as well as the left is they want to keep the money for themselves, which is something that they say about Catalonia in, in general. Also, Catalan nationalism, because the Catalan nationalists are, are in power in the Catalan state government, and so the the pro-independence stuff is, is coming much more from above than in the in the case of Basque Country. And a lot of um, political capital is being made by supporting independence and the same party which is supporting political independence is supporting a really fascist policing in Barcelona, criminalising all sorts of different protests and kind of social cleansing of the streets and things like that. It's a bit ambiguous. Just recently there's been another really important change Again, this is a whole other topic. 
traditionally in Spain or post, post-dictatorship, you had the PSOE, which is like the Liberal Party, and the PP, which is like the Liberal Party, and we know in Australia that that's basically a waste of time. A third party has emerged in Spain called Podemos, which came out of the Quinceme, the Occupy movement, and they've had enormous success. And nobody really knows how they're going to be in practice, but as of a couple of months ago, they took the city council in both Madrid and Barcelona, and that's going to be very interesting to see what happens there. Is there a green movement? I would say there's definitely like a degrowth movement. There's a big organic and local food movement. Green politics, in terms of the way we understand it in Australia, of protecting the wilderness, I wouldn't say it's going on there as much. Yeah, an ecological consciousness there is, but expressed in a different kind of way. So again, I mean, I have to talk about my own personal experience. I can't talk about things in general, but there's been... Actually, you can't talk about it. It's been, there's always been a tradition which has, which has now been rejuvenated of people having their own vegetable gardens. So you're talking about tens of thousands of people with little plots of land subsidised by the council, which is pretty great. And also a condition of being given one of the plots by the council. There's lots of other plots. Because when I say this is not a new tradition, Spain was really, really poor up until the 70s. So a lot of people just lived from the vegetable garden. So it's in living memory that everybody had a vegetable garden out of necessity, not out of political commitment. But to get one of the the plots subsidised by the council, you need to do a a course which teaches basically permaculture techniques. And so that's state-funded or state-subsidised permaculture. But then another thing which is different, even though... There's some money coming from the local council and the, the land is ceded, which belongs to the local council. It's all self-organised. So there's an association which anybody can become a member of, which um, runs the training and divides the plot. And so everybody is organising all the time there. Mm. Sounds a very complicated system mm. of government or whatever yeah, in Spain. Yeah, quite Byzantine, it's true. Yeah. Can I ask you before you go about refugees coming from the Middle East, what mm-hmm. the general feeling is in Spain, and mm-hmm. particularly the people where you're living? There hasn't been a lot of refugees coming from the Middle East. There is a lot of immigration into Spain, principally from Morocco traditionally and from South America. And there's been a lot of institutionalised racism and you have crazy fascist boneheads who say that the, uh, the Arabs are trying to conquer Spain again, but clandestinely by coming as, as immigrants. Spain actually maintains part of the territory it conquered in Africa. There's Mejia, which is um, a, a Spanish, Spanish city belonging to Spain in the north of Africa, which is surrounded by barbed wire, and periodically they open fire and, and kill a bunch of people trying to climb over the fence, which is a scandal and, and everyone forgets about it. It's really polarised. More recently, there's been lots of more immigration from the east of Africa, which is very visible because they're black-skinned people, and that's also been creating a lot of debate. The most common migration route into Spain of undocumented migration is just to come across the Straits of Gilberta. So people arrive in the south of Spain, and then, first of all, because... That area is really poor and it's really hard to, hard to live. And second of all, because immigration policy in Spain consists largely in chasing people out of town because the costs 
as we know in Australia, we just don't care, the costs of detaining and deporting someone are really high. And so the local authorities in Spain, which are really poor, basically just chase people out of town and people head north. And so migration, as in people, when people talk about migration in Spain, they talk about migration from the south of Spain to the north of Spain. So you need to specify that you're talking about migration from sub-Saharan Africa or, or wherever. They're kind of just arriving now, and it is creating a lot of debate. Actually, in the local council elections in Gasteiz, the city where I'm living, it was the issue which most polarised the electoral campaign. And you had the Pepe on one hand saying that all of these migrants are dole bludgers who come to rip us off and blah, blah, blah. And on the other hand, you had Bildu, which is the party which I was talking about, which was um, at completely the other end of the spectrum of yeah, opening the borders, taking migrants, giving support. And um, those two parties of a quite left-wing position and an extreme right-wing position, they were the two most voted political parties. So it's an enormously divisive issue. And finally, everyone kind of hopes that they'll just go away to Germany. It seems to me, Tristan, from what you've been saying, that although the dictatorship of Franco was ended many, many years ago, the legacy is still strong. Definitely. Yeah, the Francoist legacy is is very present. A lot of Francoist officials are still there. The idea of one great and united Spain completely ne- refusing the idea that if there's any, could possibly be any national autonomy comes directly from Franco. Yeah, there's definitely, that idea is maintained. There's still an aristocracy in Spain, which in terms of its ownership of land is um, is ridiculous. Yeah, so... People talk about a transition. One of the most common positions is that you say that the dictatorship is ended, but there was no transition to democracy. So there's definitely a, a long way to go. And the royal family? Uh, yes, there is a royal family. Disgraced? Yeah, quite quite thoroughly disgraced. There was uh, was it one of the princesses married a, a Basque, actually, who was a handball champion. They set up a foundation, a charitable foundation, and then stole all the money that's going through court again and again. Recently, the old king abdicated in favour of his son, which has kind of revitalised the monarchy, more or less. But, yeah, especially in Basque country, no one has a lot of love for them. There's actually one interesting story that I can tell, which is there's a position, a political appointment in Basque country, which is where the Spanish state names somebody to make sure that in the provinces, in the different states, they're complying with federal law. And this guy is is very unpleasant. And um, by law, in all of the council chambers, you have to fly the Spanish flag and have a portrait of the king on the wall, which they don't really like much. And they got taken to court, and and this is a a small bus town, one of these towns that I'm telling you about where only three people vote for the right, the two police and the the candidate. And um, they resisted, went through court, they got a fine, they were obliged to to put the photo of the king up on the wall. So they did a really bad photocopy out of an encyclopedia and gaffer taped it to the wall and said, there you go, that's that's good enough. We did speak earlier about the political prisoners, the Basque political prisoners that is ongoing, the issue of supporting them and bringing them home. Yeah, at the moment there's two things which are really important. First of all is that there's a, a campaign for the for the Spanish to state to, to comply with its own law. So that means the prisoners which are sick, the prisoners which have finished their sentences, be released. Second of all, that prisoners be held 
in prisons, if they're not going to be released, that they be held in prisons in Basque country where they can be visited. And third of all, the, the political trials are ongoing. So in the next couple of months, as I was saying, there's a whole bunch of people from Ascapena, which does international solidarity with Palestine, with Western Sahara, are also going to be tried and, and possibly facing six years in prison. So at the moment, there's an international human rights campaign. And um, if anyone is interested in participating in that from Australia, even sending an email or putting something on Facebook might help because the Spanish state with this question of prisoners is in clear violation of international law. One of the main things which happens in Basque Country is on the 11th of January every year, there is an enormous protest in favour of, of the Basque political prisoners. And in recent years, the Spanish state has attempted to criminalise that protest to say every one of the million people who march is an apologist for terrorism and should be sent to jail. And so one of the responses of the Basque political movement has been to internationalise that project and organise um, protests everywhere in the world where there's Basque people, which includes Australia. So maybe something that could be done the next 11th of January, maybe participate in that mobilisation talking to the Spanish embassy or, or something like that. But there'll definitely be a communique from the Prisoners Association closer to the date. And thanks to Tristan for enlightening us about Spain and particularly the Basque area of Spain and it's coming up to the end of the program. Like in Canada and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways. But in Pogara, they discharge their tailings in the waterways and they kill us and they say, it's okay, you are just being killed for trespassing. Subscribe to 3CR, bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch. They have the exclusive right to extract the mineral below six feet, but that exclusive right does not permit them also to kill people. Who does the killing? The company has a specially arranged security forces. Subscribe today. Call 9419-8377. Are your energy bills too high? Are you having trouble paying them or understanding what they mean? Tried to save money by changing your energy provider but found it all too complex? Targeted information for ethnically diverse and disabled energy consumers is available via a telephone and email advice service run by the Alternative Technology Association. If you are having trouble with your energy bills and want some advice, contact the helpful staff at the Alternative Technology Association on 9631 5427 or at energy at ata.org.au Politicians and mainstream media are fueling anti-Muslim hate. Attacks on Muslims are increasing and the fear is causing some women to restrict their movements. Worse, an anti-Muslim political party is launching in October. It's time for people who oppose bigotry to organise. Stand up and speak out against Islamophobia. Sign the statement at www.voicesagainstbigotry.org and ask others to do the same. Don't be a bystander. Voices Against Bigotry is a 3CR supporter. And it's coming up to 5.30 and that's the program for me for today. 
Jonathan won't be with us today, but there will be a program which you probably hear at a different time on 3CR. It's Beyond Zero Emissions. So that will be coming up in about five seconds' time, and I will be back next Tuesday at 4 o'clock. Bye for now.